0: We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, Coming Up for Air.
1: Hi everyone, this is Laurie McDougall, uh, back on Coming Up for Air. Uh, We haven't done a recording in a long time. Uh, We had a little bit of a break. I had to go out and have some, some surgery on my back, and I'm still working on my recovery, but... I'm back today, and on today's podcast, we have Dominique Simon-Levine, the creator and founder of Allies in Recovery, and she and I are going to be um, having a discussion, uh, and I'll kind of let Dominique start us off.
2: And Good morning. Thanks, Lori. It's good to be back on a podcast with you. Um. I'm wondering if, if you can tell us a little bit about your internal journey as the mother of a young man um, that struggles with an opiate disorder. Um, when you found out, how you thought about it, um, just a little bit about the, the early part of, of working with your son and how you came to understand what it is that he was going through, and what it is that you ought to both think, what you ought to do about okay. it.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, so, I guess looking back early on, um, I think it actually all started when he was very young. Um, and it started at a time when I don't think I was fully aware of what was going on. I think I I would definitely call myself actually as naive. Um, I knew that I was dealing with some mental illness. I knew that there was depression, anxiety, maybe bipolar because we do have that in, in, uh, in both my husband and my family. And he was smoking pot. I knew that. I knew that for sure. And I knew he was smoking pot for a long time, but I did not understand what a problem it had become. Um, and he actually didn't start with the opioids until much later in life. So he was 25 when he started and, um, my whole introduction, I don't think he was using opioids for very long. And I only know that now because now he's told me that he was only using opioids for about two months. Um, Now, previous to that, bear in mind, there were a lot of other drugs going on uh, behind the scenes that I was very unaware of, like cocaine. Um, I don't know if he's taken any of the other drugs, like molly or i'm sure that there was experimentation with those things um i wouldn't be surprised i
2: just want to interject here that this is one of my bugaboos about the, the way the media and experts talk about the opioid epidemic they pretty much to the last one they say you know oh this young person was fine and then somehow was introduced To an opiated pill, maybe through an injury uh, or a broken bone or something, and it's always set up as though there was no signs, no earlier use of other drugs, no experimenting with alcohol or pot, and that just isn't the case for most people. Most people already had the 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 beginnings of, of, uh, of a use disorder, perhaps. Um, and, and like you said, I men there was occasionally cocaine and maybe ecstasy and, and, and certainly the pot. Um, but then they land maybe because of the pharmaceutical industry and the, and the way medica- medical doctors were, were prescribing, they land on an opiate and for whatever reason, it speaks to them. Um, it's more rewarding than anything they've tried before. It's also much more physically addictive than anything they'd been doing before. So even if they're just playing around with it for a little while, it doesn't take it doesn't take but a couple weeks of daily use to find that you are physically dependent and you don't feel so good when you stop. So um, I, I, I guess that's. I just want to interject with that because. Um, it's not all the it's not all the fault of opiates and and addiction is something that for the for the most part begins in early teens early to mid teens and um, when you say your son was twenty five that makes sense to me there had been a, a already a number of years where he had been um, recreationally let's say or maybe more problematically already using.
1: Yeah yeah and and definitely probably um priming his brain right so that when the when the opioid was introduced it wasn't too long before he was actually addicted and i can tell you that um we've ac- he's actually had discussions with us about this particular topic and um my son is not a case where he was introduced uh through prescription meds that 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 is not his scenario. Um, and he's also talked about how the first time he... In fact, I think if you go back and listen to one of the uh, the podcasts where he's being interviewed, he says in there that um, the first time he used opioids, he thought to himself... Oh my God! Where has this been my whole life? And he fell in love with it immediately. It made him feel a particular way, and he just knew he had to have it. he He was going to use it for the rest of his life. and um, so he really is describing this love affair that he had with opioids and and the other the other interesting thing that just recently happened, a conversation between he and I he said to me, he said, Mom, I, I wish I had never even tried it because the day that, and I, I kind of understood what he was saying. He's saying the day that I tried it, it changed everything, right? It changed um, absolutely everything. And uh, And he's also had discussions with me and talked to me about how, He can even tell me the day when he started to know, uh, uh uh-oh, I think I'm in trouble because I'm sick and I know exactly what's going to make me feel better. And he had to go, he was actually helping his sister move her furniture from one apartment to another. And so it was a day of this manual labor. He couldn't leave, he couldn't go anywhere, and he said it was absolute torture all he could think about all day long was just getting home so that he could find a way to to go and use um so what what
2: what was happening in your head when you first found out What, what were you thinking
1: okay so um uh so when I first found him I mean that was just Unbelievably devastating. That was incredible. But I kind of had a sinking suspicion that this was heroin because I knew that it was in the town um, and that there were people that he was close to that was using heroin. Um, But I still was kind of wishy washy about it. I had some really naive thoughts, some really dumb thoughts. But I remember when he was in the hospital and uh, the psychiatrist- so he, had, he had
2: overdosed?
1: Yes, he had overdosed. I had found him. He was in the hospital. He was actually on life support for a couple of days. And, uh, and then um, he, he made it through. We had a big discussion actually last night about it. And he was talking about how he was on life support and he could hear other people waking up and going to pull the tube out. And he would hear the nurses run over and go, don't, 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 you know, don't pull the tube out, don't, just relax, just, you know. And he um, he kept telling himself in his head, uh, just don't touch the tube, just relax, breathe in through your nose, breathe out through your mouth. And it this is just going to be a particular period in time when you have to do this, but you're going to make it. And, uh, it's very interesting because he could hear when, when they were working on him and they were putting him on life support, he could hear the doctors talking and they didn't think he could. And he could hear them saying, this kid isn't going to make it. This kid isn't going to make it. And in his head, he was, he says, he was like yelling, oh no, 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 no. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Um, and he did. But I do remember, I remember he was in the hospital for at least four, to, four or five days. Yeah, he, he went in like on the 19th and he came out on the 24th of December. And um, I remember the psychiatrist saying he was using heroin. And I remember thinking, okay, we are in trouble because I knew from everything I, you know, had learned growing up, although I thought heroin was gone, I had no clue that it was really even out there. You don't hear much about it, or at least at that time, we weren't hearing much about it. Um, I knew it was on the fringes. At least I thought it was the fringes. But I, I thought a whole bunch of things. I thought I was a good mom, I had talked to him about all of this stuff, and he had told me he would never touch any of this stuff and I believed that he wouldn't very naive of me I thought um I thought it wasn't around I thought I was educated enough that I you know we did we were my husband and I both are really well educated people I thought we were I, immune in some way, as if I had a little bit of a protective factor around us uh, because of where I lived and how educated uh, we were. And and it, that turned out to be completely false. And also, um, when that psychiatrist told me that it was heroin, I knew, oh man, we're in for a long haul. This is not going to be Um, although I also had these ideas that if I sent him away to treatment, I had this, this thing in the back of my head, if we send him away to long-term treatment and he's gone. Now I also had this belief that he'd go away for like a year. So that was a slap in the face when I found out that, you know, 30 days was long-term treatment. Um, and we, we ended up having enough resources to be able to get him into a 90-day treatment facility, um, which most people don't have the resources in order to do that. Um, but I thought, you know what? Maybe we'll wash and dry him in a treatment center and then he'll go to, right? We'll wash, we'll dry him. We'll see, he'll go to a sober home and, and then he'll come all folded up and we'll just put this addiction thing on the shelf and all will be good. But I also, in the same sense, had a feeling like, I have a funny feeling this is a long haul and this is, it was devastating news. Um, And I think I had the benefit, I know this is going to sound a little strange, I had the benefit uh, that a a lot of other people didn't have. Um, I had been trying for years to help get him some help with some mental health issues that I knew that he had. I was never able to get him really good help, never really able to get a diagnosis, but I had read everything in the universe on uh, mental health issues. And I really strongly believed that how I was going to deal with the mental health issues, and I believe this now, really, really helped me with how to deal with substance use disorder. Um, In what ways? Um. I knew I couldn't force stuff, right? I knew I couldn't tell him he needed to do this, that, and the other thing, that that wasn't, that that wasn't even going to work. I knew that um, I was going to have to wait for him to show signs that he understood that it was a problem. Uh, not, not meaning that I needed to back off and not be a part of his life, but that I knew I was going to have to watch and wait for signs.
0: Now a short pause for a word from our partner, Allies in Recovery. Is your loved one resistant to getting treatment? Are you hitting a wall when you try to communicate with them or offer them help? Is your own mental or physical health deteriorating? The CRAFT method, which we teach on our e-learning platform, was designed to address these very challenges. A membership with Allies in Recovery gives you unlimited access to a library of learning videos, e-books, and worksheets, as well as in-house expert guidance tailored to your situation. Visit alliesinrecovery.net today.
1: They had put him on some meds for his mental health when he was really young. But he was also, he was fooling around with those meds and he wasn't admitting. He was like, yeah, no, I don't have bipolar. I am not depressed or, you know, it's you. You're the one with the problem. And so I said, take him off all the meds. Take him off because he's just going to, he's too young. He doesn't understand that there's there's an issue going on for him. He thinks it's us. And he's just going to fool around with those meds. And to me, that's just too dangerous. Um, so we did. We took him off. And I was like, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until he comes to me and says, you know, I think I have a problem. Um, and I did. Uh, and it's taken a long time for even the mental health stuff to kind of come around. And yeah. by the time, but right, by the time we got to the substance use disorder, it was like, okay it was almost like the mental health stuff had to kind of take a back burner because how do you work on that when he's high all the time? Um, yeah. So yeah. it was like, okay, we got to get the addiction thing under some control before yeah. um, really attacking the mental health issues. Um, so you, you, your experience with
2: the mental health system and looking for help for him in that area really primed you to understand a little better the control or the lack of control that you had over yeah. this new problem which was the 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 drug use. Yep. And and so he comes home from the hospital and so what do you and your husband do to now manage manage what's happening with him and with your your own your own head in all of this?
1: Oh okay. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't say I managed that well in the beginning. I Okay. So, I knew before he came home from the hospital a couple of things. Um I was looking for a treatment facility immediately. So, and when I went to the hospital, I remember having a conversation with him and he was making these promises about how he wasn't going to use when he comes home, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to use. And I remember just looking at him and saying, well, first off, you're not coming home. Yeah. Right. That's not, you're not coming home. Uh, You're going to go to treatment. And he didn't even, he knew, he was like, yep, I'm going to go to treatment. Um, And then the other thing was, at the time, we had bought a house in another state. And we weren't quite going to sell our house that we were living in, our, our permanent resident. But I said to my husband, we're, now we are. This is pushing us. Now we're going to sell that house. And I'm not letting our son step one more foot in that house again. We are going to take him to the new house that we bought when he gets out of the hospital until we are able to get him into treatment. And I went back home and I packed up his room into my car and I picked him up on the 24th and I drove him out of state to our new house and we moved in there and it was like, we're not, he, he'll he never step foot back in there again. Um, and he didn't, he never did. Uh, yeah. And a part of my thing was in the new house, he has no friends. He has nowhere to go. Um, he's kind of isolated and physically he was still not in good shape. So it's not like he was going to leave the house and go somewhere and, um, try and find drugs. Um, and we were working on getting him into a treatment facility and we did, we got him in pretty quickly, uh, within the, within two weeks, we had, we were on our way to Florida to put him into treatment. Um, And so so he goes through,
2: he goes through treatment and, and now he's away. Um, Do
1: you, okay. How are your,
2: how are your own feelings during that time?
1: Okay. So this is, these are my thoughts looking back and in retrospect of all of that, um, I held it together while he was in the hospital. I held everything together when he came home, I held everything together. Once I got him at the, to the treatment facility and then I came home and I absolutely fell apart. I, um, I was absolutely suffering from PTSD, although not diagnosed yet. Um, And I, now I have a much better understanding of like chronic depression because I became so depressed that I couldn't do anything. I could do nothing. And when I say I spent the first six months on the couch, I really mean it. I really mean, I, I remember being just like numb and just being like, I can't do anything today. Absolutely nothing. And I had left my job, which is odd. It's almost like I knew something was coming. Uh, so I had left my job, so I didn't have to go to work. And I remember saying to my husband, I promise, this was after weeks of me like sitting on the couch, I I promise in six months, if I um, can't get myself off the couch, I will go and get professional help and I will start doing something about it. And he looked at me and was like, six months, what are you talking about? (laughs) You're going to be on the couch? I was like, yeah, sorry, you know, but I can't, I can't function. And I really couldn't, and I didn't, I didn't do anything for six months. Um, but then at six months, I was like, okay, I have a problem, <laughs> right? I, I knew I had a problem. I, I knew I had a problem, but the boulders were still too big. And it was like, maybe I can dig myself out of this. And at six months, it was like, apparently I can't. And so I did do that. I went and got myself a professional a, a therapist um, to, to work with. I started doing exactly what my son's treatment facility was telling him to do. They were saying um, uh, 90 meetings in 90 days. So I did the same thing. I was like, okay, I'm going to do 90 meetings in 90 days. And that's what I did. That was my job for a while. For 90 days, I got up. Sometimes I went to one meeting. Sometimes I went to three meetings. But that was my job every day was to get up, try and locate the meetings. And they were, I went to learn to cope. I did Al-Anon. I did Nar-Anon. I did Codependence Anonymous. I, I did anything. I even went to AA and NA meetings just to see what those were like. And um, and I traveled, and I'm not, I'm not kidding you, I traveled between th- three states, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, and I think I've hit up every Al-Anon and nar meeting in those three states. Um, and I'm glad I did, to be honest with you. Uh, I found really great support in there. Uh, I started getting educated. I read every article, every book. I, uh, I read, um, what's his name? David Sheff's book that helped launched me. Beautiful boy. Um, because he actually has a lot of, not only is it about his story, but he puts a lot of the science and research that he did and that he went and looked at. And, and I love all of that stuff. So, I started reading. I started um, watching everything, anything and everything I possibly could, the anonymous people. um, And it was those things that really kind of helped me to get back into the swing of things, get my life back. In fact, it actually ended up just pivoting my whole life so my focus previous to this was I was a I was a um high school math teacher. I I did love teaching. But this pivoted me into another area and now all I want to do um that's how I ended up finding craft and finding allies in recovery. I have a cousin who went through a similar situation and she said to me um one day on my journey, she, she, her and I think very similar to one another. And she said, Hey, Laurie, have you ever heard of this craft? And I was like, no, no, I've never heard of it. She goes, well, you know what? You might want to look it up because I think you would like it. And so I did, I typed in craft. It brought me right to the allies and recovery website. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. That, and I just started, oh my gosh, this stuff is awesome this is, this is great. And I immediately started watching the video modules and started practicing them in the house. And, uh, and then of course, as you know, then it was like, I need to be in contact with this woman who created this website. I need to know more. And, uh, I started inviting you out to come and and talk at meetings and, um, and it just, it just changed, it changed my whole direction in my life. This is
0: Coming Up for Air. We're going to take a short break to share with you some words from an Allies in Recovery member.
1: This is Allies in Recovery member, GP Traveler. In the first days of the modules, my husband and I learned how to position ourselves and how to have conversations with her. No more dramatic pleas with reminders of how bad things had become.
0: Thanks to our partner allies Now back to coming up for air.
2: So other than um, the fact that you were you were now using craft in the in the house and you you described this major pivot in your life, can you describe what that pivot was like uh, what 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 was the new direction
1: and what was supporting that new direction for you so the new direction was um okay so i was going to all of these meetings and i was working on myself but i also was getting mixed messages that I was being told constantly that I needed to detach and I interpreted that as detaching from him completely. And I saw a lot of other people were, were also, uh, uh, interpreting that to mean you can't do anything. You, and I was getting mixed messages about hope, you know, uh, there is always hope but there's nothing you can do. And I kept saying, this is a really uh, hopeless message to be sending people. And then there was also the, you know, a lot of the anecdotal stuff that really confused me, like like the three C's, you you didn't cause it, you can't cure it, but you can contribute to it. And I always used to say, well, if I can contribute to the disease and doing this stuff, then can't I contribute to the other way, right? And aren't we as human beings, social beings? And I do have some power in my relationship with my son. I do. He does come and talk to me and asks me questions and stuff. And so when I found the Allies in Recovery website and I literally didn't start watching the video modules in order, I went straight to the communication video modules, um, because I wanted to learn how I could communicate. And when I started watching them, it was like, oh yeah, this makes sense to me. This, of course, of course. And all this begging and pleading can turn to shame and blame and judgment. And I do those things. And that's not helpful. I'm not getting anywhere. He keeps relapsing. He keeps, you know, he's, he's using, then he's not using. But he was doing all of the things that I saw in the video modules. Like he was expressing wishes and dips. I don't want to live like this. And then, he, and then I would get exasperated because then he would be out using again. Well, why are you out using again? You know, um, and so it was that pivot to okay i can start implementing this stuff i do i can i'm getting empowered it started to empower me that i can do some things and not sit around feeling like i just have to work on myself right um and i have to let go which of which is him.
2: which is the focus of alanon and Naranon, and i mean the, and it's th- good. they're designed it is good. It's it's designed to have you take a, a, a serious look at yourself and to detach from the person who is
1: um, who is using
2: in, right. In, and, but detach and, and therefore
1: Yeah. But detach with love doesn't mean necessarily that you have to just completely detach from the person. And that took me a long time. I had to I had, I found it myself. And I started thinking that this, this is why I think a lot of peer-led groups can kind of go amiss. Because if one person interprets it that way, and that gets spread to two and three other people, and now the whole mood of the meeting is that you have to detach from the person. Um, so like I would hear in a lot of meetings, things like um, in Massachusetts, we have sectioning. You can section someone. You can get a them. A civil commitment. Yeah, a civil commitment. And actually what they're finding is it's a bit of a disaster. Um, and I would go to meetings and a lot of the meetings were, fo- would we would get new families in and the focus would be on, well, section them, section them, section them. And I noticed that there was a lot of pressure in those meetings to section their uh loved ones and there would be families that would come in and would say things like i sectioned them six times i don't want to do that anymore it's and i was like why are we pressuring and and they would really pressure them no no do it again do it again you can go to this judge and you can do and i started saying no i don't understand why are we pressuring them to do that instead um Why don't we follow the anecdotal uh, saying of um, insanity? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Isn't this another example of that insanity, right? If If you have to section, we had one family 11 times and I'm like, okay, so it's not working. So if it's not working, let's throw that out. Don't do that anymore. And let's change and try something different. And and I kept offering up a lot of the allies and recovery stuff at meetings. And um, other facilitators would kind of poo-poo it and shut it down. And so that's actually how I ended up creating REST because I was like, no, we need to... We need to start getting parents and families empowered. We need to tell them that you do have the ability to change things with substance use disorder. I'm not saying that your loved one is going to be co- go into recovery long term. I'm not saying that. It 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 may happen. That may be an end result. All I'm saying is you can change how you communicate. You can change reinforcing behavior, positive behavior. You can um, take care of yourself all at the same time. And you can get a better result ultimately in the end, regardless of whether your, lo- your loved one ends up in long-term recovery or not. Or may- even if you only have periods of long-term recovery, or even if you only have periods of short-term recovery at least it's a better situation than it was previous and at least you have less chaos and this is why craft is actually a part of taking care of yourself right because you right. right because when you create less chaos in the house and within the family relationships you don't have to struggle with with that frustration and that anger and that or or maybe you still do but at least it's reduced right it doesn't necessarily And you, and you go can away.
2: identify it and you can identify it as what it is as right. opposed to chaos and overwhelming and depression you can tease it apart and you can say oh this is him doing this and this is me responding in this old way Right, first with fear and, you know, which is causing me to lose my temper with, you know, so we help you to tease it apart. And, and, and that's really critical for doing it differently the next
0: time. Right. This podcast is produced in partnership with Allies in Recovery. Join today and begin our self-guided e-learning program from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. You will learn how to shepherd your loved one toward treatment and long term recovery. Our in-house experts, led by Dominique simon Levine, also provide personalized guidance to members. Learn more at alliesInRecovery.net and join today.
2: In these years that you're 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 applying craft at home and your son is still using, and he's using, you know, what has become, of course, one of the deadliest drugs Around with its its increased um, strength and the advent of now fentanyl and carfentanyl. So, how are you handling your head? I mean, how? Again, I'm I'm interested in this internal journey as as much as the the craft journey. But where are you in terms of your own thinking about your son's risk, your son's life, your own life? Hmm.
1: Um. So it took a while for me to get better. And I'm not, I, I'm still on the journey now. I'm still and often in, in some of my blog posts, you'll see me say, it's not easy. It takes practice and I'm still not great at it, right? When it comes to taking care of my own obsessive thoughts and my own feelings uh, because that to me is probably the hardest part of all of this, but by far the hardest part, um, and in the beginning, I had obsessive thoughts, I did crazy wacky things, be- driven all by fear, and driven by this, uh, this need to control, right, and, and, Um, And not understanding that I think I'm controlling something when really I'm not, right? So, and what I mean by that is I would do things like um, we always paid for the cell phone and so I had access to the cell phone bills and I could go and look up the numbers that he was calling and I could block them and and I would call them. I would call them and try and figure out who these people were. Like, and what was I going to do once I figured out who they were, you know, like, go on a drug buy and then kill them or, you know, you know what I'm it's like, it, it was, it, but I felt like in that moment when I was doing these really crazy, stupid things that I had some form of control and I was going to stop something, uh, which is just, and, and I learned it took me, it took a lot of practice and a lot of time, um, and a lot of healing for me to get to the point where it's like, I still have these internal, I still have to talk to myself internally and calm myself down. I still have moments of panic and obsessive thoughts, but now I do have better skills at talking myself down. I have, I have this internal voice that will. Okay. Okay. Laurie, let it all take over. Let, let those feelings wash over you. And I do. I let the feelings in. I let the thoughts in. Right. And I'm like, okay, I'm not even going to try and control my obsessive thoughts right now in this moment. Cause I'm not, it just, it's just hitting me and, um, I'm not able to control it, but give yourself a couple of minutes because you will. Um, And I start talking to myself, okay, you know, you can spend the next 12 hours worrying. And what will that do? Uh, That'll tire you out. It'll exhaust you. You won't eat. And will you have accomplished anything? Nope, I will have accomplished absolutely nothing other than frustrating myself, exhausting myself, and not equipping myself myself to be able to confront something in the moment. Um, so how can you take care of yourself right here and right now? Um, so I'll just talk about, you know, one time he, uh, he relapsed and I knew he was, I knew he was relapsed because he was gone. Uh, we could, he turned his cell phone off. We couldn't get in contact. So it's like, oh, we know exactly what's going on. Right. And, um, I was, I had an option. I could either spend the entire night pacing and up and worrying and do, and then, and I still wouldn't have had any contact with him on the phone. I still don't know where he is. And I'm now, I'm worse than I was than when we first started because I'm exhausted. I'm teary eyed. um, So I said, okay, Laurie, how can you take care of yourself? I know what I'm going to do is I'm going to get my pillows from my bed. I'm going to put them on the couch. I'm going to sleep on the couch and I'm going to put the TV on and I'm going to watch the television. I'm going to watch something that's going to allow me to go to sleep and take my mind off of what's going on right now. Now, I also knew that um, because of my PTSD, I I still have nightmares. So I knew, okay, you're going to have nightmares tonight but that's okay because you'll just start watching the TV again and you'll fall back asleep. And I'm, I'm so glad I did it that way. I was tired when I woke up, but I wasn't as tired as if I had been pacing all night, trying to, you know, calling hospitals and calling the police department and, you know, and oh, how many times I've gone out driving around, like, you know, (laughs) where am I going to find him? I have no idea where he is um so at least you
2: convince yourself you convince yourself that you will actually see him around the corner
1: yeah i and that it's worth doing this and i and i go to like you know like really scary places knowing that i have no business being there and i drive slowly past i know that person selling drugs and i'll drive past hoping i'll see him there or you know, and these people must be looking at me like, what is this woman doing here, right? Um, They're probably saying,
2: oh, this is the 10th one tonight.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is the 10th mom showing up, right? You know, just stupid ideas. So, so by doing what I did, it allowed me to get some reasonable amount of rest. And I know this is going to sound really strange and I find this happens to me over and over again, giving myself that time, a lot of the time allows the solution to my problem to kind of come to me. And it did. It, I woke up and I thought, you know, um, I had come up with all these ideas that I know what I'll do. I'm going to send him pictures of the dog saying, saying the dog misses you so much. He loves it. Right. So I'm going to guilt him into contacting us. And I'm like, that's, and I started thinking about it and I was like, that's never worked. Never, never, never. (laughs) I've done this. It never worked. So why am I, you know what? I'm going to throw out everything that hasn't worked in the past and I'm going to do something different. And, um, so I thought, okay, in the past, I would have confronted him and said, were you using, I I know you were out there using, and that just sets him up for, no, I wasn't, I wasn't, I don't know what you're talking about. So I thought, okay, I know that he was, so why am I going to confront him? Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, hey, bud, I love you, uh, and I can't change what's already happened. I'm not confronting him. I'm letting him know. I kn- I'm letting him know that I know what's going on, and um, I'm reaching out. And I also said, I just want you to know that I love you very much. And it be, I would really appreciate if you could just call me, say hi, so that I know you're okay, and then hang up the phone. And I sent him that text message. And within 10 minutes, he called me and was like, I'm such a loser. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I said, you know what? Just come home. Just just come home. And he did. And I'm not saying that, you know, that it, it, it always works that way. Um, because maybe maybe it won't right? Maybe you send a message and that that message gets sent. Um, But at least, and and they don't respond. They don't come home. They don't make that phone call. Because I'm sure that that happens a lot too. But at least I knew I didn't add to the chaos. At least I knew that I had sent him a message that he was loved regardless of his... um, Mistake, you know. I don't even want to call it a mistake because I I also know that he was dealing with a lot of stuff at the time, which is what got him in in, into the relapse. So, um, so I don't like to say mistake. Um, It's it's just that I wanted him to know that I knew it was difficult for him to be dealing with this stuff, and that he was still loved.
2: And you, it yeah. was difficult for you. You told him it was difficult for you.
1: Yep, and, and I wanted him to know that I wa- that we weren't judging him, right? That this is you no, know, you can't come back here, even though you, even though this happened, you can come back here with us, and we're we're still here for you. We know you're struggling, and it's your struggle, right? It, 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 that's the other thing is um, really realizing that his disease is not about me. I know this sounds crazy, but that's what I think a lot of us do is we make it about us, right? That I need confirmation that you're not using. I need I need to know, I need to know. When in fact, it's not, it's not. It's. It's he, I need to separate that disease from me because I'm not experiencing it. He is and i want him to know that i know he's experiencing it and he's he's frustrated that he can't deal with it right he's um he wants to deal with it but man something's got a hold on him and why can't he get this why can't he shake this um and that's what's going on in his mind um and and it helped it doesn't mean that the next time, if something happens again, that I'm going to deal with it, great, perfectly, because there's always, there still is always a, a, a gray cloud somewhere. Um, but I also think that this is no different than any other disease and things that other families go through. So, you know, maybe a child with cancer or a child with a brain tumor. And the, and the scares and the the frustration and the worry that those families go through, I think it's the same, right? Feelings of lack of control. I, I think, you know, I there was a mom in our town whose daughter had had a brain tumor. And um, she, from the time she was a baby, she wasn't expected to live. She lived quite a long time. In fact, I think she's still alive. And... I saw that mom through the years do things like change the whole family's diet. They all became vegetarians. And to me, it's like that was her feelings of a lack of control that her daughter had a brain tumor and these thoughts that it was something that she was doing, that maybe if I didn't feed her this or if I didn't do that or if I did this, that it would change her daughter's disease and i think it's the same for us we're not we're not as different as we like to believe we're not as unique as we like to believe um mm. and so that's why i probably still have that dark cloud and that's why i'm not i'm probably not going to handle everything perfect in the future but what i have learned is I can deal with it better than I have in the past, that it's okay for me to make mistakes, that I can backpedal and apologize. Um, and that, uh, I can live better and so can my son and so can the rest of my family. I don't know.
2: That's wonderful. The, um, when we were finishing up a training a few weeks ago, you talked about, I think, a trip to Europe.
1: Uh, yeah, I know Go what ahead. you're talking about. It, it actually, it wasn't a trip to Europe. It, it, believe it or not, it was a trip to, It's this is funny, it's a trip to Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And um, I have this obsession, actually, with graveyards. I love graveyards. And I was going to a meeting in Great Barrington, and I was really early And so uh, there was a graveyard across the street. It was at a church. So there was a graveyard across the street. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go over. It was an old, old graveyard. And I'll do things like I'll take pictures of the headstones with weird names, all sorts of weird names. And I love all old, old headstones. So I'm running around in the graveyard and I'm looking at all these different old, old headstones. But they were also these really tall obelisk type headstones And I was like, oh, I'm not going to go over there and check those out. Those are probably just the really wealthy people in town because Great Barrington actually has a very wealthy population. Um, But for some reason, I glanced at one of the obelisks and I looked and I realized, oh my gosh, that's not what they were. These obelisks were erected. And they were like four, five, six, seven children that had all died in one family. And I started reading them and I realized these were the children from the flu epidemic in Massachusetts back in, um, I think it was like the late 1800s. And I 1918,
2: 1919. Okay. That was okay. the real, that was the world pandemic. The real
1: big, you know? yeah. Well, yeah. and that's when I. it was like this aha moment of, wow, boy, oh boy. This, this type of an epidemic and losing children has been going on for centuries, forever. And these families lost four, five, six, seven children in a week, in a week, how gifted am I, right? How, how uh, things are not, I'm not so unique and boy, oh boy, um, I don't have a lot to complain about, right? I don't, I'm going to go into my little meeting and yet I'm so lucky because I have three children. They're all still here with me these children died and they were young. I mean, some were infants, some were babies, some were teenagers. You know, I've had my, um, I've had my son. He's still here. He's 31. You know, I have two daughters uh, and they're still here. So I'm really not that unique. Substance use disorder is not as unique from any other medical um, issue and uh, if those families can survive that i'm going to have to be able to survive this and i'm i i, I have to <laughs> i have no choice
2: it's very well said lori thank you thank you so thank much you. for walking us through your your internal journey, journey if you will of of what it's been like these last 6 years i so appreciate how how articulate and open you are about what you've been through and and what you've learned. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Dominique. And, um, before we go, I would like to say, you know, if any of our listeners enjoy this podcast and would like to help out in any, uh, in any way at all, it'd be great if they went and gave us a five-star rating, um, that would uh, really kind of help us out and kind of get the word out a little bit more and help get the podcast out to other families that are going through the same issues.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: We hope this episode of Coming Up
0: for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesandrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, our production team, and Michael Mauboussin for the original music composition.